If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. A Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. So, Rachel Healy. Chris Pine. Thank you very much for joining us today on Pine Time. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Let's, laughing because we were talking about pine lime uh, ice cream royalty, pine lime Exactly. Splice. I like the old pine lime splice. Oh, who doesn't? When did they go out? I know they're still in. You're kidding. You can still buy yourself a pine lime splice. Because I stay away from that part of the supermarket or the service station usually. Yeah, well, you were always you were always very good in that respect. I oh, recall <laughs> twenty years ago, and uh, you were one of the first people to buy the the shakes, the lunchtime shakes. Oh, because they the were better for my um yeah. my figure. That's right. Because you know I'm quite neurotic about my shape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've always been you look quite... at other politicians and say, mm, "Could do better." And you know, Samantha Maiden, of course, is of a great course. friend of both of us. Yeah. She said that when she and I were having lunch or dinner in 2019, early 2019, she thought to herself afterwards, Christopher had pasta for lunch today, which is really unusual because given it's an election year, he would normally be shredding (laughs) for the election. It's very well observed. And she's very observant though, Samantha. And she said to Annabelle Crabb, who's another friend of ours, um... I think Christopher Pine might be thinking of leaving. And she said, oh, don't be so ridiculous. He's never going to leave. And then, of course, and then she never said anything about it again. She never gave it a second's thought because oh. she thought, oh, yes, Annabelle's right. And then when I announced I was going, she thought, yes, <laughs> I saw the hint, the straw in the wind. Oh. So because she'd known me since university as well. Yeah. No, and she knows right. that I'm, <laughs> as I said, neurotic <laughs> about my show. But you've got to be when you're on television. Well, yes, indeed. In this I, world? I, I must say it was the one thing about the documentary that I regretted that I didn't keep remembering that I was on television. Um, How many shots were there of me eating? There were a couple, actually, <laughs> there were. I ate a banana. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, why I decided to eat cock-shaped food. <laughs> 
on national television. Eating, eating a banana is always a bad oh, thing. Did I need to be told that? But, I mean, why a, did I not think that through and an, at the beginning? But of eating that a banana in period. almost any circumstance is a bad thing. Like I have noticed that when when I used to eat bananas in company, yeah. That people would fall silent. Or they'd wink at you. And you'd hear people, you could hear the person eating the banana oh. and you'd think, oh, no, that's the yes. last thing I want to hear is somebody <laughs> eating a banana. No, it's true. They have a particular kind of quality. And exactly. And, of course, you've, alluded, you've alluded to the shape of a banana. Yeah. And uh, that's why Bill Shorten bit into the mid of the hot dog. Do you remember that in the 20s? <laughs> in the 2016 election, he bit into the middle of the hot dog. Right, because he, he realised too late what, what it was, well, what was about to happen. He must have been at some barbecue <laughs> or some, some, you know, sausage sizzle and somebody handed him a sausage <laughs> in a hot dog bun. <laughs> and he really weirdly, he really sausage. weirdly bit into the middle of the bun. <laughs> And it was just not good. No, it, but it, you can you can see the choices. I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. And everybody else was thinking, oh, <laughs> not a bad choice. <laughs> That's got really nothing to do with um, what we're here to talk about. Rachel Healy is the artistic director of the Adelaide Festival. Yes, I am. Which is the second largest festival in the world and arguably the second or third best festival in the world in terms of its credit reviews and so forth by the various um, judges, with the Edinburgh Festival being consistently the largest and probably rated number one most of the time. Yes, that's right. I mean, the things that they have in common is uh, not only the programming, but both Edinburgh and Adelaide are perfect festival cities. Right. And so instead of, if you have a, a festival in a big city like New York or London, and plenty of people have tried, you just can't, an arts event can't take over the city. It's right. it's too dedicated to commerce and there's just a sense It gets that lost. It gets lost. And in Adelaide and Edinburgh, they're really walkable. So instead of spending your day in a cab going from venue to venue, you can walk between Her Majesty's Theatre and the Festival Theatre. Mm. You can walk to Writers you Week. You can stay in the city. You can walk down to East End to the, the Fringe and bumping into people on the streets and comparing notes on what you've seen and the, the whole experience becomes what defines the place and the sense that the arts have absolutely taken over the city for that 17-day period. It's really fundamental to certainly the, the visitor experience, as they tell us. Really the great artists of our generation who come to Adelaide and perform work that is globally significant as well as stuff that is produced locally or from around Australia that is really accessible to everybody. And I think that that in combination in Adelaide with both Writers Week and WOMAD that comes in the middle weekend creates just a, a really extraordinary combination that's proven to be such a big winner with interstate audiences as well as locals. Now, Rachel, you've always been working in the arts. Yep. And um, that must have started when we were at Adelaide University together. Yes. In the 1980s. Yes. When you were a young radical <laughs> and I was a young conservative. <laughs> Yet, strangely enough, we were good friends at uni, yes. weren't we? Yes. Yeah, you were very, you were always fun. Chris. Oh, that's, always very, that's good. very good fun. Well, let's hope that hasn't changed with age. Yes, let's hope so. And we first would have 
I first came across you, I think, as a artist, as a person interested in the theatre in The Frogs. That's right. I joined Footlights with a number of other colleagues from law school. And yeah, we did The Frogs, which Stephen Horan directed. That's and, right. And starred Sean McAuliffe and Alex Ward and Damien Storer was in Damien it as Stora well. Damien Storer was in it for sure. In the Little Theatre. That's right. I loved that theatre. In loved fact, that the theater. Adelaide Festival used to program fantastic works in the Little Theatre during March. It was a it's a really beautiful, intimate space. Is that where you got your theatre bug from, though, at Adelaide Uni, or were uh, you involved? No, I was. School? I was very interested. Always interested in the arts, and always going to arts events. Dad was on the board of the State Theatre Company for some years. And I did my work experience at the State Theatre Company. Right. And I was in an Adelaide Festival production, in fact, in 1984 called The Three Legends of Kra, which was at... I remember The Three Legends of Kra. Oh, it was at Theberton Theatre, written by Robin Archer. What were you? Well, it was three different stories. One was from the Navajo Indians. One was from the Samurai in Japan. The third, I can't really remember. And so I was different characters in each of those three stories. That's cool. I don't think I had a name. I think I might have been a spear carrier. (laughs) (laughs) You were a tree. (laughs) Yeah, but it was very, very good fun. A very committed tree. A very committed tree. And I'm sure you did more than that. And uh, it was great. And so uh, by the time I got to university, I knew that I probably wasn't going to become a professional performer but I was still a big lover of the arts and became, I think, in my first year, theatre editor of On D, which was the other sort of part of my uh, time at university. And how do you know that you're not going to be a performer but instead you're going to do what you've done, which is to be an administrator and a director and an activist, I suppose, for the arts? How do you know that? Uh, Well, you don't really, but I guess the key was doing things that I loved doing and... I was incredibly lucky because I got a job as assistant editor of a national youth arts magazine at Carclue. And really from then on, I kept being offered opportunities either to uh, work as an arts administrator. I was Magpie Theatre, which was part of the State Theatre Company. Mm -hmm. I moved to Melbourne, joined Handsband Theatre. Then I moved to the Australian Ballet. And then finally sort of ended up as general manager of Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney. That was the big break, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, certainly I put in a decade there working Mm. closely with Neil Armfield, who of course is the joint artistic director of the Adelaide Festival now. And from then on, you know, I've just had been incredibly lucky and had really interesting roles, not just in arts management, but also programming. I was director of performing arts at Sydney Opera House and then went to the city of Sydney where I worked with Clover Moore on cultural policy. And that yes, was so, so what took you from there to the um, town hall? Uh, look, I guess after that many years of working and being on boards of small, medium and large organisations, I was really interested in the kind of macro-cultural policy that governs what happens and how it happens. And the Lord Mayor Clover Moore, despite pouring millions into the arts every year, I mean, they would give Sydney Festival two million, for example, Mm -hmm. they didn't have an overarching cultural policy that set out what they were doing and what the objective was. And so they wanted to engage someone who would consult with the community, but also the business community, artists, property developers, really every all of their stakeholders on what a creative city 
should be and could be. And is that possible in a city of that size? Oh, it absolutely is. Mm. And and it is about setting what your priorities are. And for a, any capital city government, it's a very exciting place to work because they are small enough to be able to have real influence, but, but large enough to have the money to be able to support whatever their objectives are. And one of the things that was really clear uh, when I was at the City of Sydney was not just the the sort of the big end of town coming in and doing sort of formal Mm. concert concert presentation, but also enabling the accidental experiences where people would stumble on a fantastic ensemble and there would be public um, rehearsals, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what are all the elements that make public spaces sticky that you want to go, go back there? And it's not, I guess, about planning in silos. So, Uh, you segment the arts activity away from everything else. Ideally, you want a mashup. And if you go, you know, years ago, you'd go to South Bank in London. And yes, there would be the formal performance experiences, but they'd have really interesting outdoor photographic exhibitions and there'd be a pop-up bar next to it and a great gelato pop-up, you know. And so all these, the, the combination of those things, small and large, accidental as well as sort of, you know, formally planned is really what kept people going back to the space. And of course, buskers have always been part of it, but I guess coordinating or curating that so you've got a whole range of experiences that keep people there for much longer usually than they've intended. Like when I was at the Montreux Jazz Festival of uh, some years ago, they would have their media interviews visible to the public. And so you they'd get these incredible stars. I mean, Prince would perform there, like every star would perform in Montreux, <laughs> but they would do their interviews with the media on public stages. They didn't have my agent's no. number. Otherwise <laughs> 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 they would have contacted me for sure. And so making all of that visible means that people would wander down and there'd be outdoor performances. There were great markets which were not sort of old tat but really cool stuff by young Swiss designers. Mm-hmm. They'd really thought about how every interaction you could have with them would be would be fun. They'd have childcare on site so you parents could drop their kids there and go and see a band that they weren't plan- planning to. And so even though you might have a ticket for one 90-minute show at 8 o'clock, there'd be enough for you to do before and after that would keep you there for eight hours. Mm. And I think that that's the trick with those sorts of spaces like Barangaroo. Well, I think the arts is uh, so much about making a city feel alive, isn't it? Yeah, very and much. if it's only alive at sort of 7.30 at the Festival Theatre or Her Majesty's for once a, once a month or once a week for those people who can afford to go, then that's not really the arts engaging the community enough. No, so that's right. you've got to have that great collection, which Adelaide's been good at, particularly during the festival and the fringe, of uh, accessible art that everybody can be part of. And one of those wonderful things you do, of course, in the festival has been down on the riverbank with the Indigenous display and the light display and the water display, which, you know, people can go to for nothing. Yeah, all of those sorts of mm. activations are, are important. I mean, we, we've, for the last four years, we've done Breakfast with Papers uh, and Tom Wright hosts a whole series of interesting uh, visitors, locals, journalists, writers, thought leaders, and it literally is what it says on the tin. The papers are there and whatever's on the headlines, he will somehow miraculously weave the issues of of that day into their areas of expertise. And so there's a, an open chat about what's happening in our world. And mm. even though it's not strictly arts, it's a fantastic way of being with other people in a room and uh, hearing intelligent conversation. And, of course, all of us could listen, you know, you know to the news 
of a morning, but the ability to be with other people, hearing those discussions live is just an incredible way to start your day and feeling like you're part of a festival or something bigger. Yes. And it's also so much about educating everybody to be have an open mind about what they're viewing or listening to or That's right. taking part in. Because I remember as a young person being aghast <laughs> at the art gallery of South Australia with some of the modern collections that they had. Do you remember they had that that pregnant woman coming down the, the slippery dip that was in, they took it to the rotunda. Right. <laughs> and it was shocking. Well, I thought it was shocking. But yeah. I remember my father saying, well, you might not like that, Christopher, and it might be extending your mind, which clearly it is because it's had such a reaction. Mm. But that's the whole point. You know, yes, <laughs> sure. If all you're doing is looking at portraits of and famous you know, men and a few women every now and then from the past which I enjoy doing too, and I love the Portrait Gallery in Canberra. It's one of my very favourite places. Yeah. Then it's a bit limited. You've really got to be prepared to do a whole lot of different things. No, that's right. And one of the th- one of the eye-opening experiences I had was um, I was in London once and I took the audio guide for a Damien Hirst exhibition and it w- was an absolute revelation because I never thought I particularly liked his work, right, and going into a bubble with the artist, particularly if it's a really, really good guide, mm. and hearing interviews and discussions about particular works and understanding mm-hmm. the the context for it and the ideas behind it, it was such an extraordinary way of experiencing work that usually I'd be quite dismissive about. And I think that it's really important to take advantage of those resources that are there to help you engage with it because lots of work isn't, it's not going to be obvious what, what the artist wants. It sounds a little boutique and slightly elitist, but I do think that when you have an audio guide for an exhibition or a display of some kind, you do go into something of a bubble. Yep. And it's a wonderful way to learn about what you're looking at and if somebody then comes up and sort of taps you on the shoulder, <laughs> it gives you quite a shock. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I had that experience a couple of times with the children when I was travelling with them because when you're not travelling with children and you're on your own and you have an audio guide, for an hour and a half you mm. can be completely sort of transformed yep. somewhere else. When you have small children, you can't really no. do that. We lost one of our children in uh, Florence actually. Not the... Uffizi. No, it wasn't in the Uffizi. It was actually in Venice in uh, the Guggenheim. Right. Yeah. Where were they? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they were very little. And I remember oh, I was stressful. in charge. Oh, God. Um, in the end, they were on the horse sitting out the front. Remember the horse on the front of the mm. Guggenheim on the canal? Oh, my goodness. Um, yes, and Carolyn said, do you know where Aurelia is? I said, of course. <laughs> Around thinking, where is she? Where is she? Oh, and I had lost her actually, but she was only gone for about five minutes. But honestly, five, five minutes, five minutes is a really long, time. long time for those people listening with children. Losing a child for five minutes in a different city is kind of terrifying. Oh, look! In, in any context, my my son disappeared for about eight minutes wow. in a public park that was incredibly busy. Oh no! Near a road on a river, like we had everything. We had strangers, we had cars, we had water, everything. And he... <laughs> what a combination. It was one of those terrible situations where because it was a picnic with a whole bunch of people 
we knew, which is sort of the worst environment oh, no, because too, you it get, looks like you're just having too much fun. Well, and not you're talking paying to attention. adults, and because there are so many adults around, everyone assumes that everyone's looking after everyone Nobody else's is. kids, and actually, no one's looking after anyone's kids. You were drinking, and that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> anyway, he was eventually found. It was the longest eight minutes of my life. Honestly, mm. I still wake up at night remembering that cold fist of fear. Mm. But and either he, times have changed or parenting's changed because my mother left me at David Jones once and drove home. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I wasn't supposed to come back. It might have been like <laughs> Hansel and Gretel being taken into the forest. Mm. And I remember standing there thinking, oh, anyway. And then I went behind the counter. I must have been about five or six or something and spoke to the ladies there and they popped me in the lunchroom oh. and found her because it was long before mobile phones, found her and rang her and she'd, she'd driven all the way home. She just had a bit of a moment, I think. Oh, look, it's, And yeah. forgotten about me. Well, my son used to go to school next to the city of Sydney and I remember taking the train home one day and nearly got to my stop and thought, oh, shit, I'm meant to pick up, <laughs> meant to pick up my son. I was sitting there. <laughs> well. We could talk about these stories endlessly. So after Sydney, you got the opportunity to come back to Adelaide to do the Adelaide Festival as the yes. um, co-artistic director. Yes, that's right. And um, had you wanted to move back to Adelaide? Is that why you snaffled up that opportunity or is this, is this the pinnacle uh, in, in Australia of look, the, an arch job like that one? I, I, for me, the great thing about it was... In my career, I've usually had an opportunity to do something that's different to what I've done before because I'm not so interested in repeating myself and in sort of doing the same job but just in a different organisation. So having done the cultural policy for the City of Sydney, and I think it had been accepted by council maybe three months earlier, and there was still plenty of work for me to do, but the main body of work that I'd been employed to complete had been completed. And I'd been contacted by the headhunter to ask if I was interested and I'd said no and Neil had also independently been been contacted. He'd also independently said no. But the idea had been hatched by one of us or by the headhunter that perhaps we might consider a joint application. And if it had been any other festival, I probably wouldn't have been interested. But the Adelaide Festival had such a profound impact on me growing up mm -hmm. and it had been... Uh, such an important event for the city but also for the country and also internationally. And I'd felt that for a whole combination of reasons it had been really unquestionably the Festival of Australia when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And it no longer was, had, was quite the sort of prize that it used to be. It, its audience numbers were not what they were there was a whole series of reasons that it, it didn't have the luster that it used to have. And Neil and I felt if we were going to apply, we wanted to reinstate its primacy in this country as the most significant and, and important international arts festival of certainly of Australia, but one of the top three of the world again. And, and you have at least done that this year and last year. Yeah. And because the critics have said so. Well, yeah, we, we've, we've been uh, and really... And they're pretty critical. We've been really pleased at, at the response, really from our first program in 17, but there was uh, a, a very clear strategy behind it. We said to the board, this is what we want to do mm. and these are the elements as to how we will, we'll, we will achieve that. And they 
bought into that idea and it a part of it is having is to re, was to reintroduce international opera of the highest standard into Australia because you know one of the first parts of this process is looking at what what can we do that nobody else is doing or can do and so having a, a work like Saul which was our our I loved Saul was so fantastic. the first one was Hamlet no the first one was Saul oh and then Hamlet and then Hamlet and then Magic Flute. Aha, uh-huh. yes, of and course, then and this year Requiem. Requiem. But having a, a major international opera was going to be central to getting people to travel mm. and that has been a really successful strategy because we know that that uh, those who love opera will travel if they think the work is and the event is exciting. And so immediately building up our interstate audiences uh, who also then support the festival through donations mm. um, and become almost ambassadors for the festival was central. But then building around that, so everything else that we were programming gave people a really strong reason to come to Adelaide in that opening weekend and more recently staying for Writers' Week, staying to a WOMAD, which is in the second weekend. Uh, there were a series of elements and... Uh, along with the opera was being really disciplined about exclusivity, which drives our colleagues and other festivals a bit crazy because, of course, it is it makes sense financially for everyone to share work. If you've got an extraordinary dance company coming from Israel, for example, then you want to uh, defray the costs by sharing it with the Sydney and Perth festivals, for example. But if we are to do that, then and it's no longer exclusive, then you're giving people less reason to get on a plane and come to, well, they to Adelaide. Exactly. So we've been quite uh, tough about uh, ruthless. Yeah. Right. Well, I think he had to be. I don't think that the Adelaide Festival uh, had been eclipsed by other festivals in Australia, but I think when the Adelaide Festival for 50 years was one of the very few and then almost every city now has a festival of varying degrees of quality. No, that that's right. And, and that it, makes it much less exclusive unless you say if you wanted to see these four or five different uh, performances, you actually have to come to Adelaide to see it. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I used to call it the festivalisation of Australia because mm. in 20 years the other thing that was happening is that art centres around the world started to program festivals, in inverted commas, uh, which was a very smart way of putting an umbrella over a series of events that otherwise you would have to sell uh, from the ground up. Mm. Now, for art centres, that's quite a hard thing to do because you don't have a subscriber base like a, a state theatre company does or a, a symphony orchestra. And so if you can cluster a whole range of similar events together then and call it a festival, mm. then it makes it easier to market, it's easier to get sponsorship, it's easier to get, to get government grants and mm. so on. And so, I mean, when I was at Sydney Opera House, that's exactly what we did. We created Spring Dance, a dance festival, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas oh, yes. and Ideas Event. Yeah. Uh, we had a whole series of these things throughout the year and, indeed, Adelaide had done the same thing. It had created the Guitar Festival, Ausasia sure. Festival, um, Cabaret Festival. And uh, so it, everywhere you turned there were festivals, food and wine festivals, you know, ideas festivals all over the country. And so it made it quite challenging for the original festivals, if you like, the international arts festivals around each capital city to to carve out a place for themselves that mm. was very distinctive. And I think Adelaide really had struggled with that. But 
as I, I say, looking at what we can do that nobody else can do. And in that first year, putting on the Secret River in the quarry, oh yes, that was, was terrific. Was a perfect example of what festivals can do. That that uh, which is to go outside the four walls of an art centre and create a site specific. It was cold experience. the night that I was there. I must say. Yes, I think. But I, I dressed poorly. All right. <laughs> I should have worn. <laughs> I dressed for the summer, and of course, as soon as the sun the sun was gone, I was I was in deep trouble. But well, I think I. Pushed some old lady. You know, pushed old. <laughs> I pulled an old lady's rug from next to me on half onto me and half onto her. I think she just generously allowed me to. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have died. So you wouldn't do that now, being a hills dweller. You'd, exactly. pr- you'd prepare for. No, we're both weather. hills dwellers. So how on earth are you going to do twenty twenty one? Well, twenty one. Because COVID has changed everything. No, that's right. I mean, 21 is challenging, but because so many of the artists and companies that we work, uh, that we invite to the festival, you have to be talking to them about 18 months to two years ahead. So Mm -hmm. we saw enough last year that we can program a great deal of 21. The problem actually will be 2022 because there's only six months really between the end of a festival in March and then launching the next one. Mm -hmm. And... We've never found, you know, 70 works. In that time. In that time. Mm. In six months to find 70 festival-ready works. Not possible. That's right. So I'm not quite sure how we're going to handle that. I mean, some theatres and festivals will be reopening August, September, we think. Salzburg Festival have already announced that they will be programming a smaller festival, but a festival nonetheless, which Mm -hmm. will run all through August. And others uh, are looking at a September open date. So we'll just try and, and travel hopefully as Hopefully you'll as we be can. able to get overseas travel by then. That's right. That's right. We'll just see see what the world looks like. I'm hoping. I think we will. I'm quite optimistic about it, but I've been optimistic all the way through about it. Look, the thing that I think it does give us cause for optimism is that this whole thing has sort of happened in 10 weeks. And so in another 10 weeks, the world could look completely different. Mm. I think the challenge for the arts is how it will manage social distancing and what both the laws are but also what the psychological issues will be for people buying tickets and whether they will. Next year. Yeah. Tell me a bit about politics in the arts. I find it really fascinating that a lot of your patrons, sponsors, supporters are, you know, from the non-Labor side of politics because they, you know, rather crassly have to put it, that they have the money to be sponsors and donors and buy season tickets to the opera or the state theatre or whatever it might be. Um, But you don't find a lot of Liberals amongst your cast members, producers, (laughs) sound technicians. So there's always seemed to me a bit of a dissonance between the left in the arts who are kind of slightly dismissive of liberals or the non-Labor side of politics, and yet there is a kind of symbolic relationship with the people who've got money. And one of the things that I found interesting about the documentary was that without, you know, positioning people on the political spectrum, the arts, what, what, there's obviously an event at someone's private home in, mm. in Adelaide, which was a lot of people drinking champagne and eating canapes and looking very interested and very well, very affluent. And you and Neil, I think, um, you know, appealing to them basically to provide funding and support for the festival. Mm. And much as I think that's just 
you know, bread and butter really of anything. We're all involved in business right through to the arts and, every, and the government with raising revenue, which is all just different ways of raising funds. I find it slightly dissonant that the, the arts is dominated by the left and yet mostly funded by the non-Labor side of politics. And do you have an explanation for any of that or is it just not really interesting enough to even think about? Look, I, I, I think it is interesting, but I don't think, so certainly at a superficial level, people will kind of buy into those binaries about left and right. But I think that for most people, there is a sense for instance, wet liberals, for example. Moderate liberals. Mo- moderate liberals. Small L's. I think don't have, uh, they are not so different to those people, again, talking in superficialities, in the arts who are who will identify as left-leaning in terms of social justice and social justice issues, but who are absolutely supportive of private enterprise and supporting business to do as much as they can. And obviously in the arts, there are commercial enterprises in our own city here in Adelaide. Torben Brookman's company was creating musicals that were being sold throughout Asia and mm. and creating incredible employment for artists and technicians. And, and Well, every artist is a small business. Indeed. Every and individual small business. Absolutely. And in the case of theatre, I mean, for most theatre companies, government subsidy is really only about 15% of its overall income envelope. And so finding ways and learning from business to to achieve your financial goals, which enable you to achieve your artistic goals, is not so, uh, d- doesn't put them so in such different corners to As you might think. those who are, you know, have any other kind of business. I think that the thing that brings <laughs> that community together is a is certainly a love of virtuosity and that is, you know, that is something that is absolutely built into what the Adelaide Festival has always been. And, you know, having an artist as we did in 19, like Natalia Osipova, who is seen as one of the greatest dancers, not just in the world today, but of all time, and she performed a work for the Adelaide Festival. I mean, there is no other organisation in this city that is set up to present that kind of artist. And also part of our our remit and has always been part of our remit is to produce the most challenging and creatively imaginative works. And if artists are, are, if the content of those works are the social issues of the day, then that's part of what those artists are interested in making. We then decide not on the strength of of the politics but on whether the the experience as a, as a, a, a creative event is thrilling and resonant and engaged and likely to get people talking. Of course, there's always been, history tells us, there's always been an extraordinary relationship between the super wealthy and the arts world because the Renaissance was built on the back of people with money deciding to... the Medici's, for sure. Exactly, deciding to spend money on um, artworks and sculpture and transcripts of plays and symphonies and so forth. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's always been thus ever been thus yeah creativity and supporting creativity i think is a is a primal 
response in in most people, whether it's attending or taking your children to ballet lessons or I think people will express mm. their interest in creativity in all kinds of ways. And I think that that will always be with us, whatever the politics of the day are. Thank you. We're coming towards the end of my lovely time with you, but I would like to sort of talk a bit about the return to Adelaide. Has it been what you expected, good, bad, indifferent, changed? Yes, it it did feel changed. It felt um, it felt like there was the poverty was more visible. Is walking, that right? Certainly, if you walk down when I came back, the difference between walking down Pitt Street Mall in Sydney and walking down Rundle Mall was immediately apparent. Uh, and there also seemed to be homelessness seemed to be much more visible uh, in Adelaide, uh, Melbourne. Uh, certainly going to Melbourne because I lived in Melbourne for a few years in the 90s and visiting there it was it, it, the, the rates of homelessness were astonishing. Is that it, true? It, wasn't the, it didn't have the same visibility in Adelaide but certainly you could see a change after being away for 25 years. On the other side, there was also so many interesting micro-initiatives. So the small bar movement was in full swing when I moved back and... Adelaide has always been a supporter of interesting chefs and... Mm. Um, well, look at MasterChef. Well, indeed. I think four of the last 11 are from South Australia. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, you will remember in the 80s there was Possums and Mistress Augustine's and, mm. and like really fantastic national, nation-leading chefs You'd have loved here. the Pancake Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> and the blue moon might milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> we were leaders in cuisine in the yes, pancake absolutely. kitchen. Mm. But these days you've got just as many really exciting chefs here and again I It's think a funny thing. I wonder why Adelaide creates those sorts of people, Poe and Adam Lieu, Lieu and Maggie Beer and so on. I think it had... It's all, Callum. It, it's all about... Reputation. It starts with reputation and obviously having having places you can study it. But people want to come here. The climate's perfect for... Outdoor dining. For, well, for producing really good quality food locally mm-hmm. and then so having fresh produce into the restaurants. And then a young chef thinks, I, I want to go and train with Duncan Velgamot or, or whoever. And so they come here and then they take those experiences and move into state. And it's or, a tough market. Sure. And it's wonderful when amazing people come back, as you have. So we're very pleased to have you back. Thank you. And and what does the future hold? Do you think when you're you're have you got a five year contract with the festival, or is it open ended? No, it started uh, as three years, and then it was extended by another two, and then another two again. Oh, so good. all up, I'll be here until twenty twenty three. But my oh, kids, wonderful. of course, are at, at high school here. I'm very so happy here. I'll be a bit. I'll, I'll be here a bit longer than my contract. Well, I believe in longevity, so seven years. It's important to have consistency and approach. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that the Adelaide Festival, which previously only would engage an artistic director for a single year, yeah. and then it grew to sort of two or three years. That was a bit crazy, I think. Yeah, and I, certainly around the world, between five and ten years is about right, I think. Who do you think was the most unsuccessful <laughs> artistic director? I've got mine. Do you want me to tell you mine? Yeah, yeah tell me Robert yours. Helpman. Oh, interesting choice. He... <laughs> <laughs> he rather famously said when he was the artistic director that nobody from overseas would come to Adelaide unless they were coming to see him. 
<laughs> so he had a very That's famous great. fight with the um, Adelaide Festival board. Right. Uh, because he refused to make any effort to get any guests here from overseas because oh. he said there was no point because nobody would come to Adelaide. So that must have been the early 70s, I think. Yeah, it's a long but time ago. I think ago. hopefully we've moved on a lot. We have moved on. A lot we have. from there. <laughs> That's hilarious. It is, but I don't think, yes, he wasn't such a great success. I don't think he was renewed. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, thank you very much for coming on Pine Time today. Oh, it's thank been you. fun. Really fun. Great to talk. And thank you for your great efforts for our city as well. It's an absolute pleasure. And as I used to say to people when I was in Canberra, what's good for Adelaide is good for Australia. Quite right. So when we have the best festival in the Southern Hemisphere, it's good for our whole nation. Quite right. Thank you, Rachel Healy. Thank you, Chris. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.